passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the podcast companion for Eggshells, Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome. This is an audio companion to the book, Eggshells, Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, the comprehensive guide to every pro wrestling show that's happened in Japan's most famous arena. And in this podcast, we go a little bit beyond the text and with a different guest each episode uh, we're going to explore each year in Tokyo Dome history and joining me to have a look at 1990 this episode uh, representing post-wrestling uh, it's John Pollock. It's a pleasure to be here Chris and I'm so honored to have chosen or been chosen for the year 1990 with two dome shows actually that were bookends to my sixth birthday, which was in March. So ah. you got to see the transition from five years old to six years old when <laughs> I had no idea what the Tokyo Dome or New Japan Pro Wrestling was. Right. Yeah. Me and uh, Jojo Remy on the last episode, we were talking about uh, 1989 and the UWF U Cosmo show happened on my sixth birthday. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, certainly I had... Yeah, like you, no real uh, knowledge of Japanese pro wrestling or really Japan as a place. Um, I didn't really have that much of a relationship with wrestling at, at six, did you? No, I didn't start watching wrestling until I was seven years old, so early 92. Mm. And uh, this th this was all stuff that I, it, you know, New Japan, I really didn't get, get into until well into the 90s. Um, so all of this was was foreign to me, uh, literally and figuratively, in 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, how about Japanese pop culture, John? Do you know in February 1990, the uh, number one hit song was Shizuka Kudo and Kujibura Karabiyaku? <laughs> You know what? It might have been playing in the hospital when I was born that I'm not even aware of. I mean, it was it was a huge tune in in 1990. Yeah, right. Uh, also, in April 1990, when we get into that, our second uh, show on this episode was the uh, American release of Super Mario Brothers Three. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite video games. I was one of those kids who just skipped from Super Mario to Super Mario 3 and never dealt with Mario 2. So it was mm. um, 
I remember my parents getting me Super Mario 3, and I just loved it. And I never really questioned, like, this mysterious Mario 2 because it wasn't until I went to a friend's house that they had the mysterious Mario 2. And I remember playing it. I'm like, this is really cool. It's like this missing piece of the puzzle in my head that I never knew existed. Mm. And I wasn't all that blown away by Mario 2. To be honest, I was like, I was fine skipping this and going right to 3 because I I loved 1 and I really loved 3. Yeah, it was a different game in America as well. Because, like, the Japanese Mario 2 was just more Mario 1. And there was a separate game that was based on a TV show or something. Um, And so when it came to releasing it in America, they changed this game that was about a TV show and put Mario characters in it instead and called it Mario 2. But uh, because, like, Mario 3 came out in Japan, like, a good deal early. Like, it had already been out, like, two or three years. But by the time Mario 3 was out in Japan, Mario 2 was the new thing in America. So they let it sit for a couple of years. And I can tie this back to wrestling because, like, you know that Mario 3, to promote Mario 3, they released the movie The Wizard. Yes. Which starred Fred Savage. Oh. And then you have the old one years <laughs> pro wrestling at NWA and then later Eric Bischoff sort of uh, alliance going on there i i mean we could tie it right to this i mean we had fred savage the brother of ben savage on boy meets world with leon white who we're gonna chat about his his eye nearly falling out on one of these shows oh so so many so many different connections here we 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 can make chris yes yeah exactly and everything with you know wcw as, as we get into like the uh the first show there, February 1990, which uh, saw New Japan uh, hit the Tokyo Dome. So this was their, their second show, uh, New Japan's second show in the Tokyo Dome, the third show uh, in the building, period. And um, yeah, this was Super Fight in Tokyo Dome. Um, and it was really, this was meant to be a, a sort of WCW connection. And it turned into an all Japan connection um, because of, of all sorts of political pratfalls uh, that went down along the way. Um, and the original sort of main event here was was going to be Keiji Muto versus Ric Flair. Um, and that fell by the wayside, uh, mainly because like Ric Flair was was having big uh, falling outs with Jim Hurd at the time. And then that led to, yeah, like you mentioned, Big Van Vader eventually you know, working out a way around. So like this this big clash of like the two foreign stars of, of Vader and Hansen and then Vader's eye nearly falling out. Yeah, and I, I think one of Vader's most famous matches is this match on, on the Tokyo Dome. I think even Stan Hansen, this is a match that kind of transcends generations that people are aware of. I mean, Vader made such a big point of this match in his in his Hall of Fame speech, that it's just such a visual match that you can't help but go and watch this. It's frightening to see. Mm, yeah, it's, it's honestly like the match itself isn't really that great. And like, no, it's uh, you, you monsters yeah. brawling, but you think this guy's lost his eye in the process. Yeah, right. And, exactly. yeah. and there's that moment when there's a shot in on Vader, and the entire place in the dome just is a gasp. Yes. They can all see his eye is completely messed up. And there's this audible gasp. And from that moment on, it's like when you see a legitimate injury in a match and it heightens the drama. Um, th- this is a match that, yeah, on on mute, it's just these two monsters just flailing away. But it's all, 
you're just concerned that this man has lost an eye in the process here and is continuing with the match. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite one, and the, you know, I mean, Stan Hansen involved in two kind of big matches both you know both these shows he has these like these these big matches and both these shows it's it's interesting the way that that stan hansen is kind of the the substitute figure that makes both this show and the all japan show um much better than or certainly more newsworthy than it would have been ordinarily uh had it been booked as as intended um but uh, yeah, as we, we look at each of these shows, uh, we tend to pick out one figure or one match per show um, to to kind of go into deep dives on. And I usually uh, defer to my guest uh, for, for such circumstances. Um, and you sort of singled out uh, Koji Kitao to me. Yeah, because Koji Kitao is such an interesting figure. And this is where he is uh, making his debut against Bam Bam Bigelow, who was... You know, also someone that I feel um, a North American audience is familiar with, but it to me was always his – it's what could have been in Japan to me mm-hmm. with, with Bam Bam Bigelow. That, and you, you could say the same in the United States. Like here was a guy that I was always an, a huge Bam Bam Bigelow fan when I first saw him. I just was so enamored with the look, the flames, the tattoo, and his style. Like just watching a man of that size be able to do – uh, to be able to do a cartwheel, to be able to come off the top rope. He just seems so tailor-made for Japan that I just would have assumed he would have had a career much closer to a, a big Van Vader, for instance, who would have a long, big, sustained run, whether it be with New Japan or All Japan. And I don't think I, I don't think it ever really panned out for him in Japan. And I would say the same in North America. I mean, he had his successes, but it was never... Uh, to me, reaching uh, that potential. And the same could be said, I think, for Koji Katao, who you could see here, Chris, was someone that came in with a ton of momentum, also with a lot of controversy from how he exited Sumo and was also somebody that I think was, um, I wouldn't say Bigelow was his own worst enemy, but I would in the sense of Koji Katao, that is himself, he got in the way of having a, a promising career. Yeah, yeah. So he got sort of expelled from Sumo for sort of fighting with his, his stable master. Um, and then was really sort of trained in secret. You know, he was, well, you know, they sort of said that he was going to go into pro wrestling, but he was really kind of a secret project that, that they were keeping under wraps in, in New Japan. He was trained in secret. He was sent over to America for further development, kind of in secret. This was kind of in the time before social media where you could do that. And um, then he was set to, to re-debut here in the Tokyo Dome. So like uh, Bigelow doing two kind of high profile jobs and like this was the extent of Bam Bam Bigelow's Tokyo Dome career really it was like yeah. to you know he he lost to Salman Hashmikov in in eighty nine and to Kital here and you know I almost wonder you know like hearing you sort of recount Bigelow's sort of experiences on both sides of the Pacific you almost wonder whether Bigelow was just like yeah but you know i mean it's kind of a nice easy tidy payday for him you know on both on both fronts he didn't really have to do that much and probably got paid quite handsomely uh for the effort but um what really surprised i think it also oh sorry finish your point no i mean what surprised me about kitao in this match was just how blatant kitao was meant to be a a japanese hogan target oh yeah 
Yeah, it's and this crowd is like buzzing at the beginning of this. I think that, you know, bringing him uh, back from the United States and putting him on such a major show like this, like there there was the intrigue of Koji Katao, uh, at least at this point in his career. And I think it's notable with Bam Bam Bigelow, who was kind of put into a lot of these roles where he wasn't necessarily the focus, but he was the guy they trusted to get the, the best out of the opponent. They, I mean, when it came to the Lawrence Taylor angle at WrestleMania, it was Bam Bam Bigelow that was put in a, a really important spot that year headlining WrestleMania. So it always seemed that they had uh, a lot of faith in this guy in terms of just getting a novice through a competent match, but also somebody that, I mean, very much lent himself to that kind of appeal. Like this was a character that really came through in magazines, whether it be on television. Uh, and I think that was a large part of, of the appeal of Bam Bam Bigelow beyond just the, um, the in-ring portion. Uh, I also found out this interesting stat. Did you realize that Koji Katao, not only one of the few that has wrestled at the Tokyo Dome at WrestleMania and WrestleMania, but also fought for the UFC and Pride, which when you put the four of those together, Chris, <laughs> that has to be an exclusive club consisting of just Koji Katao. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. And uh, yeah, so I mean, if you haven't seen this match and, and you wanted to, to understand how much of a Hogan analog he was, he comes out in yellow and red, uh, first of all. Um, does the sort of big, I mean... His his sort of initial offense, it's kind of like, you know, the, when they had WCW uh, sort of celebrities showing up in WCW. And it's like, oh, he can do an arm drag. So he's it's, it's a wrestling genius. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's, it's that kind of thing. Very, very simple. And then, you know, a very sort of Hogan Andre-like um, body slam to Bam Bam Bigelow. And that, that gets the, the crowd up. And then he wins with the big leg. Like, I yeah, I, I don't know what I don't know what the archetype was for Koji Katao here. Not yeah. at all. The leg yeah. drop finish, and then Bigelow complaining to the referee. I mean, it's a it's an extremely basic match, and I, I guess you would have a better sense of this. Like Koji Katao with the the way in which he left Sumo. I mean, was this some something that would, would this have been off putting to a large amount of the fan base that New Japan was utilizing this guy, or was this something that this this guy could have been a superstar had uh, despite the controversy of how he left sumo yeah well i mean you're at a time frame here where you know we're crossing the bridge from like shore wrestling to heisei wrestling where like there was in the showa era which was sort of pre 1980s the 80s 70s 60s you had a lot of that stuff where it was somebody from another sport that was either either voluntarily or not left that sport and then went into wrestling. You know, mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily seek out wrestling as a career path, which is what more people did do um, in the Heisei era over, over the 90s. So I think like there, you know, I mean, certainly he was like a controversial figure for the, the reasons he got kicked out of Sumo. But I think there was a lot of um, intrigue on Kitao coming into, into pro wrestling. And you could pick that up on... Uh, the reactions that he got in the match. But, um, I mean, like you said, he he was his own worst enemy. Um, he butted heads frequently with, with Ricky Choshu, and literally within a couple of months of, the, of this match, he was out of New Japan um, because, uh, yeah, he, he used uh, apparently uh, ethnic slurs against Ricky Choshu, who was uh, a born, you know, naturalized uh, Japanese, but was born in, in Korea. 
Um, and that was enough to get him fired. And then he had, you know, we'll explore uh, his his run in, in SWS in our next episode. But uh, Oh, yeah, with, with the most famous match of his career, which we will save for whoever yeah, is right. uh, joining you for that yeah, one. Yeah, with, uh, with one Mr. John Tenter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was... His was a very sort of strange career and, and a very strange figure. But, you know, I mean, he very clearly didn't. It was, I think the the audience was probably more willing to accept Koji Tao than Kitao was to the audience or to a pro wrestling audience. He he wasn't interested in doing pro wrestling at all, I think, beyond the, the paycheck. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other match that I kind of wanted to single out here that I thought was interesting was Larry Zabisco's run and only tokyo dome appearance um which is yeah mm. which you look at this card if you have never watched this card that's probably not the match you're you're zeroing in on if you're just gonna throw darts at what will be the most enjoyable here but yeah this is a this is quite the performance from from both uh him and masa saito yeah so this was um the the vestiges so i mean basically the, the whole situation was this was going to be more of a wcw new japan card because like new japan had started this relationship uh with wcw and uh as I said off the top here that the main plan was to have rick flair go against um keiji muto um and when that fell through um sort of seiji sakaguchi uh who is the the president of new japan sort of uh and giant barber sort of reached out to one another uh to cross that bridge giant barber was was promoting this this big super show which we, we're going to get to um you know in our next show in in april um and he wanted new japan on board so it sort of made sense to for barber to send some talent over um with the understanding that the old japan guys would would look good in the end you know that's why you had uh you know hansen and vader sort of went to a no contest um but uh yeah so this was sort of the last vestiges of all japan's relationship with the awa which perhaps you can speak more to this john like the the state of the awa in in early 1990 was not good at all right no this was when a, a the awa was on its deathbed i mean they were still on espn but they were just floundering towards the end like this was very much a promotion that it was just tick tock on the on the longevity of, uh, of this promotion so i mean in the in the grand scheme of things when we're talking about all this uh these interpromotional um arrangements for these tokyo dome matches a typical theme that comes up is is just leverage of hey we will supply you with talent but it's on these conditions and the awa was coming into this where I think they had no leverage and they just simply wanted to, um, you know, the fact to have their championship presented here at the Tokyo Dome was probably a big win in and of itself for them, much less having the rematch that they would get uh, back later uh, in their own promotion back home. So yeah. the AWA was just, I mean, it would be done within the year. Mm, yeah. It's interesting as well that the Masa Saito, uh, who Zabisco was facing, was he was a freelancer at the time. So he sort of had more freedom to deal with his own bookings and going back and forth to, to the West, you know, uh, if if sort of circumstances uh, demanded it. Um, so, I mean, that made sense in terms of putting Saito uh, opposite Zabisco, um, where ordinarily it wouldn't. Um, it was strange, but like Masa Saito was actually IWGP tag champion at the time with uh, Shinya Hashimoto. 
and Hashimoto was teaming with Chono to take on Sakaguchi and Inoki in the main event. So there was a lot of sort of weird shufflings and sort of odd, uh, sort of strange bedfellows. But um, yeah, like I said, it, it it made for a surprising, really good match with, with Saito and Zabisco. And it's not something sort of opening up this sort of 16 minute uh, video file on New Japan World and like the first sort of five minutes of a very quiet uh, Zabisco in control of, of the arm of, of Saito. Um, but it's amazing how hot the crowd is as, as soon as Saito fires back. It's just ridiculous that the noise coming from this crowd. It, it's kind of unreal. Yeah, because like the first five minutes or so, as you outlined, it's pretty much just uh, Saito working over Zabisco's knee. And then it's when the first Saito suplex is hit, this place erupts and they stay up for the rest of this match. And it, there was just enormous heat throughout the stretch. Saito hulking up and I mean, I thought the Saito suplexes, I believe there were three of them in the match, and they were all used judiciously. And this audience, I mean, this is, to me, one of the, in terms of just a bell-to-bell performance, one one of Larry Zbysko's highlights to me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'm really not a Larry Zabisco guy, but like, yeah. No, no, I, I really, really enjoyed this. The one thing that, that tickled me, um, or that I think was strange, just is the finish to this, because like, you know, Saito, as I say, like, he holds up, he hits that Saito suplex, that, that backdrop suplex, and then he does like the wrestler thing of like, come on, get up! Get up, get up! <laughs> what's what's going to come? What's going to come? It's like don't turn around, Larry Zabisco. It's an inside cradle. <laughs> it's, that, it's that knee. It's that foundation of damage he he built up in the in the opening part. That that knee. It's like there's nothing crippling than an inside cradle for a man <laughs> with a with a torn ACL. Maybe uh, I don't know what Saito's thinking was, but uh, yeah, like uh, you know, Larry Zabisco had some big money drawing programs in his career. But in terms of matches, I mean, you ask the average historian, give me your top 10 Larry Zabisco matches. I mean, you're probably going to be scratching your head before you get through 10. And uh, of the matches I saw with Larry Zabisco, this would have been uh, at the high end. I mean, this was a pretty heated match and one of the better offerings, which if you looked at this match on paper the day before this show, I don't know if you would be circling this one as one that you absolutely must be in attendance for. Yeah. All right. Um, so if we have a look at our other show from 1990, and as we're recording this, I think people are going to listen to it much later, but um, almost exactly 28 years ago to the day um, since this, this happened, April the 13th, 1990, um, as all Japan, this is something sort of unthinkable today and, and really unthinkable in any other circumstance. But All Japan Pro Wrestling presents the All Japan Pro Wrestling, New Japan Pro Wrestling and World Wrestling Federation Wrestling Summit. Um, really, yeah, just a, an AGPW, NJPW, WWF uh, wrestling show that it's just sort of, it's unthinkable. I think these days people would say it would never work. Um, I think that's really because they tried it in 1990 and it didn't work. <laughs> but, no, uh, no. Yeah. But I'm so glad the, that the attempt w- it exists on yeah. tape. A wonderful uh, story from this show that um, I saw a very famous wrestler, Japanese wrestling journalist, Tazen Yamamoto, shared it on Twitter. 
um, last week because it was the the anniversary of the show as we were recording this, and it's it sort of summed up perfectly the 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 thinking. Uh, the Japanese way of thinking with of pro wrestling, Barber's way of thinking with pro wrestling, and then Vince McMahonism to a to a nutshell was that uh, this was a you know it was all Japan promoting the event. It was airing on NTV, which was the all Japan's broadcaster. But really, a lot of it, you know, if you've seen a lot of the show, it's a very WWF feel to the production and everything like that. And um, WWF were doing a lot of the promotional material. So they sent um, Barbara a whole bunch of promotional material that initially called this the AGBW WWF Super Show. And Barbara freaked out. He was just said, this isn't a show. Right? You can't call this a show. This We don't run shows, you know? And so <laughs> that, that caused this, this uh, big back and forth that eventually led it to be called the Wrestling Summit. I thought that was a great story. I love the name, the Wrestling Summit, because I think it conjures up an image of Antonio Noki, Giant Baba, and Vince McMahon all seated at like a like a long table, like at the UN, discussing the the issues of the day in professional wrestling in 1990. Yeah, there, there there's yeah. a podcast for you. There you go. Three. Yeah, and then probably Inoki probably wasn't Inoki at the time. Probably more like Sakaguchi or maybe Choshu. You're right. Sakaguchi the, would have been president at this point, right? In the middle, just going nah. No, <laughs> no, you're not. You're not doing this. So there was going to be a lot more back and forth, and and a lot more interpromotional matchups. But uh, yeah, I mean, talking to people sort of at the time, and um, you know, having talked to sort of Jr. and Dave Meltzer around at the time, it sounded like an absolute political mess, as you can kind of understand. And New Japan basically wanted no part of it. So what was going to be a lot of sort of New Japan versus WWF matches went to strictly New Japan matches. And there was two um, New Japan, like Jushin Thunder Liger against uh, Akira Nagami. Um, and uh, for the IWGP tag titles, uh, they got Masa Saito, that name again, uh, and Shinya Hashimoto retained against uh, Chono and Choshu. Um, but uh, they did both of those matches. And then because this was, strictly speaking, an All Japan show, and All Japan was airing on NTV, those matches didn't even make tape. Um <laughs> because NTV couldn't broadcast them. So, yeah, it, it, New Japan basically said, no, no left, left everybody to, to their own devices. Um, and I'm, I'm imagining mm. the, the WWF taped all of their stuff because they would spring up on, on Coliseum Home Video and, mm. uh, you know, certain releases, but I'm pretty sure that, like, they would have never put out any of the, the New Japan stuff. It was strictly their talent that they were focused mm, mm, on. Mm, but mm. I'm, I'm sure they taped the entire show. I'm sure... Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that, that sort of blows you away looking at this, and it's the one thing that's, that's hardly in any other footage of the Tokyo Dome, but they have this camera angle on the roof of the Tokyo Dome looking like yes. straight down. It's yeah. amazing. You know, it's like, wow, it's, it, I can't believe, well, I can't believe it because it must be such a pain in the ass to get like a, a camera up there. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's this amazing shot that, that you see during the... They use it really well during the Tenue Savage match where you see just, like, the scale of the crowd down there. Yeah. Know, all the way up. Like, this has a different feel to it than a typical... Like, the, the February show we just watched, like, between the two. Like, there is a distinct feel to this one just through the production. And I guess it's also just so much of the 
the Americanized talent that is, is on this show as well probably contributes to that, that this um, there is kind of a WWF flavor to this show more so than, you know, uh, a typical uh, New Japan or All Japan show that you would see at the Tokyo Dome. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when it does sort of go very WWF-ized, you get, like, Ultimate Warrior versus Ted DiBiase, which was <laughs> not, it was just awful. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, uh, the, the audience was very vocal during during that particular uh, display. And, and you could also tell, Chris, the ones that came over here and saw working in the Tokyo Dome as a big deal, and the yeah. others who had the belief of, this is never going to see the light of day, or... It's going to be just – it's another house show. Well, there you go. And it's, it's one of those things you could probably almost level at Bret Hart, you know, as as much as that's kind of hard to believe. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like, you wouldn't expect, A, that Bret Hart and Mitsuharu Masara worked a match together, and B, that it wasn't very good, you know, is kind of a, a real surprise. But, you know, Misawa, uh wrestling as Tiger Mask, this was really right at the end of his time. Uh, as Tiger Mask, because pretty much almost straight after the show, you, you had a big talent exodus from from New Japan. Uh, Genichiro Tenri led uh, that that went everywhere to sort of spark SWS, and that led to a sort of gutted gutted roster. And so, you know, Baba was was at a loss and sort of thinking, but you know, what to do, what to do. Um, Tazin Yamamoto, who was his his big time advisor at the time, you know, sort of said, "Well, you've got to have uh, Misawa go over Jumbo Suruta. you know." Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when they were sort of off to the races at, at that point. Um, and they had, you know, this this wave of of young hot new stars from there, you know. So it's a, a matter of sort of necessity breeding uh, invention, but. Bret Hart vs. Tiger Mask was, you know, I can't, I can't remember the time limit. Something like a, a reasonably short match, like twenty minutes. It's twenty, 20 minutes. minutes. Twenty yeah. minutes. There you go. Um, but I, yeah. I remember when I first found that match, and it was like over a decade ago, and just finding it online or something. And you, you know, you find Bret Hart and Mitsuharu Masawa in nineteen ninety. It's like, wow, what an Easter egg here. And yeah, you watch it, and you're like, okay, that was, you know, it, your whatever your expectation level is at it it performs under yeah yeah i almost feel like bret hart was thinking okay we're going to a draw yeah it's going to be an hour is it <laughs> you know, like oh it's 20 minutes oh, okay oh, fuck it. you know it's just uh yeah just a very sort of slow match and get once it sort of starts getting out of getting into not even getting out of getting into second gear i think that that's when it just finishes and they're just like oh you know that's uh yeah misawa was was on his way to to better things, uh, having finally, you know, stopped being the, the Tiger Mask gimmick, which um, he didn't enjoy uh, at all, but he was sort of thrown at by Giant Baba. Um, Giant Baba had like a habit of throwing things at Misawa. Um, he was, Misawa, when he got the Tiger Mask gimmick, Misawa was in Mexico um, on excursion and he gets this this long distance phone call from, from Giant Baba, sort of picks it up sleepy, he's like, oh, what? Who's this? It's Baba. Oh, it's the boss. Okay. And uh, and Baba, all, all Baba asks is, can you stand up on the ring post and balance there? It's like, yeah, I think so. It's like, great. You're on the next flight tomorrow morning, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I've got this character now and you're going to be it, you know. He sort of flies in and gets into Baba's office and like the gimmick's just there. It's like, you do this. <laughs> um, 
And you did the same thing when uh, Baba gave Misawa the book. He, you know, he just sort of said, you, you're booking the show now. <laughs> like, no, well, no but you, you say that Giant Baba used to throw things at Misawa. Well, 10 years after this, I think Matoko Baba was literally wanting to throw things at Misawa. Yeah, well, it turned out she was having lawsuits thrown at her instead. But um, yeah, it was, that, that... It was not very uh, happy. Uh relationship uh in the yeah. post baba all japan we will definitely dive into that once we get to 99 and 2000 uh on this program that uh i think we can't and uh you know you you've picked up on this that, that we can't really talk about the show without talking about the main event uh hogan and Hanson, which is my favorite hulk hogan match i don't know about you wow your favorite mm. one ever with stan hansen it's um yeah when you look at history of hulk hogan like, this comes two weeks after the Warrior match at WrestleMania six, which is, you know, one, one of Hogan's probably better performances, especially at, at this time period. But then you have this uh, coming 12 days later uh, with Stan Hansen. And, like, this was, uh, you know, of the examples I use of guys that came over here and took this seriously, I'd include Hogan in that. Like, mm. I think having the history uh, of, of wrestling for New Japan – I think that Hulk Hogan, he'd be an easy candidate to assume being someone that would come over and just wrestle a Hulk Hogan match, but didn't. I mean, he understood, you know, this audience and and what this meant and the legend of Stan Hansen, who was subbing for, for Terry Gordy, which is, you know, a story you can go into as well. But, I mean, this was originally earmarked to be um, – who was the original po- – because there was someone before Gordy, right? Was it – was Tenru the- being discussed for a main event first? No, the the promotion was Hogan and Gordy, and like there was a lot of sort of back and forths over over it, you know. And and what the the eventual story is that you, you sort of have three sort of poles where the the kayfabe, and then the one set of wrestling rumors, and then the other set of wrestling, the the business side of the wrestling rumors comes in, um, where you know really, I mean, Hogan and Gordy just, I mean, Gordy was popular at the time, but he was also like really popular as a tag team wrestler. Um, yeah. You know, so he was part of the miracle violence connection with, with Steve Williams, which was, you know, really over deal. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, you look at Hogan and Gordy and it's like, eh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't sort of scream main event to you. And, um, but it, it was really... also like, let's remember when the promotion for this also kickstarted, Hogan was still the champion. So yes. he was not coming over here to lose. So therefore you kind of didn't need, that sacrificial lamb, which I guess made sense on the Gordy front. And then, like, it seems like they were left in the dark about Hogan dropping the title to Warrior, that they weren't even going to be getting Hogan as champion on this Exactly. On this yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So that sort of led up to um, basically the, the, the sort of the, – the way they span it in sort of storyline, so to speak, which wasn't too far off the truth, was that – Gordy found out that Hogan had lost the title and then didn't want to wrestle him in a, in a non-title match, um, right. which was, you know, partly also Gordy didn't want to lose to Hogan and he especially didn't want to lose to him in a non-title match. And then from the, the business side of it, as, as you said, like they've lost, it wasn't, it wasn't doing gangbusters. I mean, the show in general didn't do a huge number. It's, it's hard to sort of pin down exactly what, what the number was. Um, but it, it wasn't, you know, it's probably the worst of the shows we've, we've looked at so far, especially when new Japan sold out in February. Uh, this was nowhere near that. 
Um, and so it was a very sort of slow uh, advance. And then when you take, when you look at the fact that it wasn't even going to be a title match in the main event, then it was really looking kind of bad. So they threw Hansen in there, you know, really with sort of days, just over a week out before the show. Um, and really that should have been the, the choice from the beginning, because I think like Hansen and Hogan, it's not just to, you know, very often, like it's very hard for all foreign main events, um, even today to, to get much traction in Japan. Um, but you know, and then back then more so, but like, you're looking at people that transcended the foreign wrestler archetype, uh, in Japan for respective people. So this was like, without having an all Japan versus new Japan match officially, this was an all Japan versus new Japan match really more than all Japan versus WWF because Hulk Hogan was the, uh, sort of Gaijin figure for, for new Japan, Guy Kokujin figure for new Japan in the early eighties. And Hansen was the leading foreign figure for all Japan. So it was this, this big sort of, uh, dream clash, uh, that Hogan and Gordy was, was by no means that. And so this worked out far better for them. Yeah. And I, I think that this almost, uh, kind of endeared Stan Hansen to, to everybody in, in the country. Like whether you were someone that felt, oh, well, you know, Stan was one of the guys that, that was snatched up and, and jumped over to all Japan it was like here was the guy that was standing up to the 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 foreigner Hulk Hogan that had you know had his ties here to the country, but then had become you know the archetype of North American professional wrestling at this time. That I mean, Stan Hansen kind of came became like the default uh, kind of hero in this situation. And I think understanding the whole behind the scenes of this this main event uh, switching around, and it was Hansen that kind of was the glue that kept this together and. You know, what I really enjoyed about this match, Chris, was just right down to the finish of Hogan not winning with the leg drop, but using the axe bomber. Like it was just like such a subtle touch and maybe not so subtle, but understanding where he was and who this audience was as well. Not having that belief that it is the, the WWF is the the global footprint that everyone is going to subscribe to. It was he tailored he tailored his style to this audience. And this was a match that Hogan took seriously clearly this was not just uh, some night off for him yeah yeah and it, it wasn't you know it, it this was this wasn't going to be like a, a technical showpiece it was just a very very snug very just wild brawl and it was um, exactly what the audience wanted it's like yeah it was exactly what they wanted you had that, and, and compare uh, that to warrior who had yes, just exactly. won this title and yeah didn't do anything spirited in this match with, with a very capable opponent in Ted DiBiase, who who does know this country, um, you know, it's just it's it's not the kind of performance that to me, if I'm just looking from afar, I mean, Hulk Hogan felt like your champion representing your company on this show and not Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, I, I love the visual of like, um, you know, about Hogan blooded up uh, Hanson and then just kind of really dominates Hanson for a good solid part of the match when like Hanson finally gets the boot up in the corner. And he sort of comes out at Hogan, but like without any sort of logic of, you know, he has no idea what I'm going to do when I get there. I'm just going to fling myself bodily. And it kind of turns into a kind of a shoulder, shoulder tackle to Hogan, but just sort of exploding out that corner with just his entire body and like the crowd going nuts for that. Um, 
Yeah, great. And then, as you said, I mean, the Axe Bomber from, from a finish, but it was kind of like a flash finish as well. You know, it really kind of snuck out of nowhere. You know, you didn't have the, the sort of Axe Bomber sort of big run up and there's, there's the big Lariat. Um, you know, it, it really sort of hit you out, out of nowhere, which, which was, you know, occasionally a thing in, in especially more sort of all Japan matches. Um, yeah, it, it's a really, really good match. And, um, you know, if you're not sort of familiar with a lot of Hogan's sort of 80s and 90s uh, Japanese output, then, you know, you'd be well served to, to check out a lot of his stuff. Um, yeah, because because it is, believe it or not, well, well worth watching. Um, I think really Hogan only sort of fell foul to falling back on that Hulkamania Western Hulk uh, standby once in japan and that was probably like the chono match in uh 2003 was it 2000 right would be yeah 2003 um that 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 was like the only time where where hogan really really fell back on that and and that would that turned out to be his, his last match in japan you know also there is uh there's a version of this match that is uh called by sean mooney and lord alfred hayes and oh, we got a new we got a new title for hulk hogan lord alfred hayes dubbed him the master of all forms of combat, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> so don't get any wild ideas, Stan Hansen, about yeah. shooting on Hulk, brother. Yeah. The master of all forms of combat, forms Hulk Hogan. Of combat. Fantastic. Wow. Well, I mean, that's what gets you thunder in paradise, doesn't it? It's like being a master um, of all forms of combat. I definitely wanted to uh, to make mention of the Randy Savage and mm. room match because this thing is phenomenal this was I, I didn't watch this entire card in preparation for this uh but i watched at least half the card and this mm. was the clear highlight for me was this match i thought th- these two were just tremendous together randy savage worked this as though it was wrestlemania and and the announcers were calling this like a main event at budokan during tenru's entrance like this felt like this was one of our few interpromotional matches and had tremendous heat um you know Savage loses the match, but it was just such a great performance. And I thought Randy Savage was on fire here in 1990 as as the heel King Randy Savage. Yeah, yeah, and and you sort of had tenure here at, at his best as well. And um, yeah, it, it, Cherry was great during this and interfering, and it was just like this crowd was just so into all of this stuff. And I, I thought all three were, were, were great. I, I didn't, I didn't think Sherry was like overbearing or de- detracted from the match at all. She did get involved, but I thought it was all, um, it, it worked for the overall story of the match. And just like, this felt like to Savage, like this was, this to me was like his, his WrestleMania, because you remember from, you know, two weeks earlier, he was doing the, uh, the mixed tag with, oh, with Dusty tag, yeah, and, right. and okay, Sapphire. Yeah. Like it was kind of, you know, him and Dusty had like a, a pretty, you know, good feud going. But for the WrestleMania match, I mean, it was kind of just a throwaway mid card match for a guy that had headlined the show the prior year and was kind mm. of phased down a little now with with Hogan and Warrior on top. But to me, this was the match that, I mean, just blows away his WrestleMania performance that year. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, and pretty soon Tenhu would be working with the WWF again, but yeah, under very, very different. These two would both be on the WrestleMania card the next year, along with uh, yeah, Koji Katao. Yeah, Yeah. well, there you go. Yeah, being interviewed by Regis Philbin, (laughs) that youngster getting to attend you. 
There's also, there's also the trivia note, Chris, we have on this show of uh, Kenta Kobashi and Masafuchi taking on Tito Santana and Jimmy Snuka, where, mm. if I'm not mistaken, is this referee not a young Shane Stevens, a.k.a. Shane McMahon? Shane McMahon, yes. Kenta Kobashi yep. and Shane McMahon, to my recollection, the only time they have shared a ring was on this show. Yeah, yeah. And one of those uh, few figures that you can say, oh, you know, when pe- people will say, oh, AJ Styles, Shinsuke Nakamura, you know, they did the Tokyo Dome and they did WrestleMania. But Shane McMahon did <laughs> before. Way That's a trivia note you can, you can bust out on the most ardent exactly. wrestling fan. The night that Kenta Kobashi and Shane McMahon shared a ring yeah. for a, uh, well, a, a rather forgettable tag match. Let's well, just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And there you go. Okay, yeah, so uh, a good, a strong couple of shows uh, in the Tokyo Dome um, for New and All Japan. Um, coming up around the corner on our next episode, on episode three of this this program, um, Rich Krejci from Voice of Wrestling is going to be joining me. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at 1991, which finally had Ric Flair in the Tokyo Dome, the infamous Ric Flair and, and Tatsumi Fujinami match. Um, as well as as two shows from the SWS as as WWF um, invades Japan again this time with the aid of an a, an eyeglasses shop. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's a tie-in that you can make that you're gonna look back at the SWS with a 2020 with hindsight. 2020 hindsight. Me and me and Rich. Well, yes. Exactly. Um, yeah, John, thanks for thanks for taking this trip down, uh, but not really memory lane with me, but certainly a, a trip in the time machine uh, with me. Um, this podcast uh, goes out mainly to, to backers, people who supported uh, Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome on Indiegogo. Thank you very much for that. Uh, those guys uh, are getting this show early, but... Um, when this podcast comes to, I believe you're fine, Post Wrestling Network, um, yes. it will be later, maybe more towards the summer. Um, so maybe keeping your your pitches time non-specific. Have you got anything that you can plug in a, in a non-time-sensitive sense? Uh, well, if you are someone out there that has not uh, gone out of your way to support uh, Eggshells, uh, make sure you pick up this book and as well... Go get Lion's Pride. These are essential readings uh, for anyone out there that wants to understand uh, the entire culture of Japanese professional wrestling uh, and everything uh, surrounding these events. So that's what I want to promote. Postwrestling.com is uh, where you can go for all things else. But uh, it was my pleasure to come on with you, Chris. I believe we're doing one more of these uh, down the road, and I'm looking forward to it. It's always great chatting with you. Okay. Cheers. Thanks very much, and goodbye. 